Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only producer, Bert Sugarman. Bert, good to have you on the podcast. So, you just put the Midnight Special up on YouTube. How did this come to happen? After 50 years, or actually 49 years, about a year ago, um, my wife said to me, what happens to YouTube? So many of our friends and our younger friends all are YouTube, YouTube. Why don't we put the Midnight Special on YouTube? Thought about a little bit. It seemed like the right thing to do. Talk to our son. Uh, he loved the idea, said go for it. And uh, here we are, Bob. Okay. Those in the music business know there are huge rights issues. Did you have all those rights issues in the original contract to do whatever you wanted with Midnight Special, or did you have to go back to these acts and get the rights? Well, I had the rights from the get-go, but to go back to as many acts as we've had on the show, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, uh, would have not been practical. But then, years ago, in 1972 to 1981 or two, we really did get the contracts working right and signed properly and i have every single one of them that i have kept okay so is every performance from the midnight special on youtube not yet that will come in the future some performances are and we put them up early but as time goes on it's only been two weeks since someone had to type in midnight special tv show to find our channel uh but now we're ready to go and every monday we add new songs new artists new people and it's been fun and i read the comments and i really really enjoy them the comments are terrific 
They're intelligent. They're people who said, I was 10 years old and watched that show and hid under my covers with a little small TV. And I remember so much of it. And other people say that I'm just getting used to it now for my own family. And uh, it's very exciting to me. It really is truly exciting to go back and look at some of those performances I remember of the over 490-minute shows. I was at every single show and down on the floor with the artists. So how were you so prescient to get all these musical rights? Because this has certainly been an issue in movies when they wanted to go to DVDs, to streaming. They could include certain songs. Did you just have a good lawyer or did you see the future? Well, maybe a combination. But again, the performance on Midnight Special, I have the copyright to. If it's a matter of the song, on occasion, I have to go back on the song and take a look or someone will contact me and say, we have to give you the rights to this song or charge you or this or that. And when that's happened, which hasn't been much, uh, when it's happened, we've worked with them. But the performance is, I have the copyright to and the show. Okay. If one goes on YouTube there are many performances from the Midnight Special that are not on your channel. So are you compensated on that? Are you planning to take those down? What's going on there? Well, from what I understand from YouTube and our attorneys, we have the right to take them down. Uh, somebody has a fan club with an awful lot of people on, and uh, I called him up and talked to him. And after having a great phone call with him, we're going to work together. He's going to let his fan club know about what I'm doing, uh, which is terrific. And he's building that fan club, and I, I'm behind him. So we've got a good relationship, but they have to subscribe to the Midnight Special TV show to come on mine. No issues. I've not run into any issues that I've been unhappy with so far. Now. There are many different deals with YouTube. Did you negotiate a deal with YouTube or is just this the straight compensation deal that YouTube gives? I know that our attorneys have been in touch with YouTube, know them, talk to them, have other deals with them, and I'm not really versed on that yet. I will be in the future. Okay, let's go back to the origination of the Midnight Special. How did it come together? Johnny Carson was on at that time uh, every night until 1 p.m. Or 1 a.m., actually, 1 in the morning. And uh, I would watch The Tonight Show, and then I had to look at 1 in the morning at an American flag and something like that, which was beautiful, but there was no television. There were no movies all night. There were no television shows. And it made me wonder... What the heck? I'm up. I can't watch any more TV. I'll read a book. And I did that often. But I thought, what could I put on there that people could be interested in? And uh, I thought music, music, music. That's what to put on. Johnny always had on comics that were terrific. Occasionally some good musicians. Uh, and I came up with the idea of musicians. And I wanted to put that show on. And the first person I actually talked to about it was Johnny Carson. He was my neighbor, and he and I played tennis two, three days a week before he went to work. Uh, and Johnny would go to work around 5.30 and shoot that show around 6. And uh, I started talking to him and mentioning that I was thinking of putting a TV show on. 
And he said, well, if you do that, that'll help my last half hour. Obviously, my last half hour, the ratings kind of go down as people fall asleep. But they may stay up to watch your show, and that'll be good for me and good for you. Develop it. Work on it and tell me how I can help. I gave it a lot of thought, talked to some friends about it, and uh, I went to NBC and told them what I had in mind. I expected a wonderful, warm welcoming because I knew them all at NBC from the president down, and uh, I had put television shows on NBC, but I wanted to be on NBC to follow Johnny, and the immediate answer was no. No, we can't do that. They'll never show up. Those rock people, they're, they're on drugs and they're drinking and their bands are falling apart. They'll, they'll never come. I said they will come. Maybe one or two or three might not come, but I think a group of them will come. Well, meeting after meeting and talking to the right people, uh, a friend of mine said to me, you know, Bert, NBC and everything, everybody else in that business wants to be on the good side of the FCC. Why don't you talk about getting out to vote because remember last year 18 year olds were voted to be able to vote and not many of them are right now i thought that was a wonderful idea in my next meeting with nbc i said listen i'm gonna have my host and some of the guests discuss the fact that we want to get young people out to vote and you'll be a real help there on nbc that really did get their attention bob once I said that, they started thinking more seriously, and they were still on the fact that maybe all the acts wouldn't show up. But, all right, how do we, how do we solve the problem? I said, I'll tell you what. I will pay for it. I'll do the show at your NBC studio, and I'll pay for it. Y you will? Yes, I will. Well, we own the Tonight Show. I know, but you won't own this one if you want me to pay for it. You want to pay for it, you'll own it. We don't, we're not sure it's going to work, but if you're going to pay for it, we'll give it a chance. What about the advertising time? I said, I'll sell it. I will go to some sponsors. I've got sponsors from all the different shows I've done and I'll get advertising. I will sell it. Uh, it can't be too expensive that time because it's never been on before. How do you sell advertising at one thirty and 2 and 2.15 in the morning? Finally, after I'm going to say three months of meetings, it got put together, Bob. So at that point in time, what did you budget for the initial show? I budgeted about 180000 to do the first show. And I also felt that if I went to the record companies and asked them about the acts as well, they would want the acts on because if you're on television, and these rock acts, really, they toured. They traveled. They flew around. They were in buses. The country acts especially were always touring live. But I felt that the record companies could help me get the acts because they knew that next day, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, they would start selling more records. So they were helpful. And um, I thought for 180000 I could put that together as well as sell airtime uh, to some sponsors. I had used, uh, example, Chevrolet for a lot of my shows. And I went to them and talked to them. There was a fellow whose name is well-known. His name was John DeLorean. And John DeLorean, I can't remember at this moment if he was still at Pontiac or had moved to Chevrolet, but he thought the idea was great because he said young people have an influence on their parents about what kind of car they buy. So there we went, and that helped me sell the time. And uh, 
I built a show around it. It was $180,000 of your own money, which is like a million dollars today. Did you ever think of taking in a partner or you wanted to go all in on this yourself? I really wanted to do it alone. I had been doing television shows and really game shows for years and years, a lot of specials. And uh, I had made some money and done well with it. And I wanted to do it alone. I, I felt that I had an idea of it. I, I was creative with it. I love rock and roll. I love country music, uh, all kinds of music. I just really love so much deep in me that I thought I'm going to do it myself and not have somebody tell me what not to do. Okay. You get the green light. Was the show already formatted or did then you say, well, now I've got the time. Let me figure out how to do it. That's exactly what happened. Now I've got the time. How do I do this? Let's go. I brought a couple of people in to talk to about it. Uh, some of them have had terrific careers. Uh, Dick Ebersol, uh, the name at NBC. Uh, Dick was a friend of mine when he came from the East Coast. He actually stayed at my house for a while when he first came out there. I knew him well. And um, uh, Dick was absolutely terrific. He then went on to go to NBC and run sports for them for years and years and years. But Dick was involved in suggesting acts and timing on it was great. Another fellow named Kenny Ehrlich, who now is the producer of the Grammy show. Uh, another fellow named Rocco or BC, a young guy that came in who knew a couple of the acts. We all sat around tables and Susan Richards uh, was the booker with Tisha Fine, and Tisha still books the Grammys. And I'm talking about back in 1972 uh, when we did this show in August of 72, the pilot. We talked about who might be the host, why this person should host it. We had to get some people who could talk because we wanted to talk about Get Out to Vote. And over a couple of weeks, we come, came up with a show. And I did some of the softer rock earlier following The Tonight Show. And the harder rock would come on at 1.45 maybe or later. Uh, I thought those people might be up a little bit later. And that came the first show. But then we had to find a host. Okay, tell us the story. A uh, well-known producer at the time named Jerry Weintraub. Knew I was working on this show, and he said, I've got a young guy named John Duchendorf. And he said, John's name is being changed now. He's just come out with one or two records. They've done very well. We're calling him John Denver. Beautiful voice, white bread-looking young fella, not rock and roll with funny-looking and tattoos on his forehead. None of that. He'd be a great host. Well, he brought him over, and I met him and liked him, and he actually sang some works in the office, some things he wrote, and he was terrific. And he could talk and enjoy the conversation. I started asking him about Get Out to Vote. He knew about it. He said, oh, yes, I can talk to some of the acts about that. So I said, you know what, Jerry, let's have him on but not have him host. Jerry said, no way. If I can do something with Elvis Presley – I'm telling you, this kid's going to be a major star, and you're going to look back and say he was the right one. So Jerry talked me into it, and John Denver was the host of the very first show. Okay. Do you remember who was on the first show? Well, we had uh, Mama Cass, um, Linda Ronstadt, and the Everly Brothers, Argent. We had some great acts on that show. Uh, I... 
called some of them, had a little trouble with the agents, but then the record companies pushed and they helped. And then on one or two of them, when I told Johnny, he said, I'll book him a week in front and just sit there and talk to him. And we'll talk about what's going to happen to the show when they get on. And Johnny was extremely helpful, very supportive, very helpful, and a, and a good friend of mine. So it worked out well. And that's how the first show obviously did absolutely terrific because NBC immediately came to me and said, this is working. Everybody liked it. The FCC liked it because get out to vote. All of our executives liked it. The ratings were there. When can you start and do a weekly? Well, I said, give me a couple of weeks to think that over. So I really started terrific. And I said, I need five or six months. Let's put it on late January, early February. And that's what happened. Okay, let's go sideways for a second to Johnny. Uh, he had his public persona, and then he had his uh, off-screen persona, and different personalities have been described. Since you knew him so well, what was Johnny like off-camera? Johnny was an extremely competitive person. The days that we weren't playing tennis, he actually went into his downstairs, what he called his man cave, and he played the drums, and he was absolutely terrific at it. Johnny was much of a loner, very much so. Competitive at tennis, we had a wonderful time playing. And if he didn't win, he was very, very vocal about it. He wanted to win every game. Uh, I was less vocal because I wanted him to promote the show. <laughs> but we, had, we really did have some laughs and a great time, and I enjoyed him a lot. Do you remember how you met him? Let me think back to that one. I don't think I've been asked that question. I think I met him pulling into the driveway where I was pulling in, in in a fancy car and he had his little Mercedes coupe that he drove and he wanted to take a look at the car I was driving. And um, he came over and visited and introduced himself. Of course, I knew him and he knew me because I was the neighbor. And we sat there and talked. We literally sat there for over an hour just talking generally. And was he aware of who you were once you told him what your name was? He, he didn't know which shows I had produced, but he knew I, had, knew I had produced some, especially because they were at NBC. And I often used the NBC studio across from Johnny's to do my shows. Even though we never got together then, he knew the name and he knew I was around. So it was, he was comfortable with talking to me. Do you remember what kind of car it was you were driving? I do. It was called a Gia, G-H-I-A, a Gia 450 SS that I was driving, and he just loved the car. How'd you end up getting that car? It's, it's another show, Bob. I actually had that car built in Italy, and I had 58 of them built uh, because I saw one on a cover, and Gia made bodies but not the engines and drive frame. And again, it's a long, long story. So we'll do that one another time. Okay, just to stay for one more second, if you had 58 built, what happened to the other 57? They got sold. They were sold, I would say, roughly half of them in Europe and half of them in the United States. And I had a retail sales operation right on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, Wilshire and Cannon. The Ferrari dealer happens to be in that building now. And... Um, uh, that's where I sold them from, and it did not take very long. I sold them very, very quickly. You remember what the price was? 
approximately thirteen or fourteen thousand dollars. And do you still have your Gia? I do. And was it a good car, irrelevant performance? A lot of these Italian cars are known for being uh, for breaking down, shall we say? It's another it's another show I'm telling you, but um, it was a Chrysler drivetrain, and it was terrific. And are you a car collector? Or you just had that one experience with Gia. I was a collector, Bob. At one time, I had sixty two cars, and I collected them and enjoyed them and loved it. And what and you I do know, with all and the cars? I know you enjoy the Midnight Special, right? And what you do with all the cars? Over over the period of years, I've sold about fifty five of them. And what was the favorite car you ever had? A nineteen thirty three Duesenberg. Wow. Okay, so this neighborhood where you're meeting Johnny is approximately where for those of us. Who it are was born? It, it was in Bel Air. Okay. So you have this relationship with Johnny. You put on the show. Uh, I'm just interested, since you did the first show and you sold the advertising yourself, how did the economics end up working out? They worked out well. Uh, I think on the first show all over, I broke even. And I was happy about that. But I actually broke even. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter and composer John Batiste the all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. 
Learn more at ucsd.edu. Okay. For those of us who weren't in the business, there were a number of shows at the time. There was your show. There was in concert. There was ultimately Don Kirshner's show. Do you believe you were the first? What was going on there? The, they they basically came after me. There was one before me, and that was Dick Clark's show. And and if you were on Dick Clark's show, you were lip syncing. And when I watched it, and I noticed that the the voices and the faces were not matched to the words always and i thought it was so great of dick to be able to do that so early and have some terrific acts on but i wanted everybody to sing live if they felt they couldn't sing live i couldn't put them on the show that's how i felt and that's what i did and everybody sang live except just a couple of over the years a couple of acts uh, were in another country or somewhere so they sent me a tape a tape of them doing it, and I knew that one or two or three of those tapes, they were lip-syncing on their own tapes, and I would have Wolfman Jack say something about that because I wanted everyone to sing live, and I also had to go and find the best audio people uh, to work on the show for me who were working on records. They worked for Universal, for Warners, for AM, etc., and I would bring them in to help make the audio as good as I possibly could. And that was really important to me because I knew the acts cared about that. Okay. So, you know, even back then, an act would come in for a sound check when they're playing a live gig. And the acts usually would not be good from the very first note. So how long would it take to record an act? Some um, country acts immediately. They were just ready. They had been the night before someplace working live on a stage and they were ready. A, a few of the acts needed a little bit of time and we were patient. And to tape a 90-minute show, of course, that included commercials. So the show itself went about 110. Uh, we took about six hours to do that show because of exactly what you're saying. Some acts needed a little bit more time than others, get the voices right. Uh, I, I mean, I can just remember somebody like Paul Anka, who was also on Dick Clark some years before. He'd come out, and the first note, he was sensational. He just did it. He knocked it out. And I had him host a couple of times, and uh, he was involved in booking the acts and who they were and who he wanted, etc. But there were a lot of acts that just came out and did it. David Bowie. I went to uh, England, and the Marquee Club was very hot at the time for some of these acts and the Stones, etc. And I taped him there, and from the first note, David Bowie was on it, just on it. During that taping, and you know, the little things you remember, Mick Jagger came in, and uh, under his arm was Marianne Faithful. Wow, that probably might mean more today than it did then. Um, and then David had... Uh, uh, a long-haired lady come in named Dushenka. And Dushenka was just beautiful and, and sang. And then I found out later that Dushenka was a man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some tape on that that's really, really interesting. And we'll put it up on Midnight Special. So rock acts, well, all acts at this point in time, are never happy with their performance and they want to tweak it after the fact. Did people want to do that? What was the Midnight Special's policy? 
I didn't find that. I really didn't. The acts, when they came on, I think they had rehearsed with the record companies before in order to get whatever songs they were going to sing. And of course, many of them had number one or top 10 hits. Uh, They were ready. A lot of them, a few of them that weren't. And we'd take a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it took to make it right. And I, um, the name Richard Pryor, I know, of course, you know, and Richard was a, a dear and close friend of mine. And I had, I hadn't yet, but I had produced Richard Pryor's four NBC television shows and Richard and I were dear friends and he would come to a lot of shows. And if we were having a little issue with an act of some kind or another, Richard would knock on the door, walk inside, talk to him, relax him. Nobody could believe that was in Richard Pryor, but he did that. And he was hanging around the show. And then I had three stages going at the same time. And uh, one would be lit, and that's where we would shoot. And the other two were kind of rehearsing quietly, getting ready. And Richard would be standing around, getting the audience up and happy because they were all sitting on the floor. People lined up outside to come to the tapings. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of trouble like that. I think I was fortunate, Bob. So it was all shot in one day. Yes. Yeah, at NBC? Yes. Okay, what was the commitment? How many shows for the year when once NBC said yes? Roughly 48. Oh, wow. So it's old school. Yes. Yes, old school. And we repeated about four shows. Okay. Yeah. How did Wolfman Jack get involved? In sitting with that group of people that I told you about, the Susan Richards, the Tisha, the Dick Ebersaw, all of them, one of them, I don't know which one, said, you know, there's a there's a DJ that works out of Tijuana by the name of Wolfman Jack. He's got an incredibly unique voice. The artists are just crazy about him. And of course, they want him to play their songs. So if we could get him involved, the artists would like to come and meet Wolfman. They didn't all go to Tijuana. And he would know them more apt to play their songs during his DJ week. And uh, then he was in a little thing called American Graffiti. And because of it, I, I I just felt that was a great idea. They showed me some pictures of him with a big smile on his face, and I loved it. Called him, had him come out to the studio, met him, and instantaneously, we really connected. He was always, always a favorite of mine. He and his wife, Lou, were wonderful people. And um, Wolfman was there, and he would call acts to come to do the show. If somebody was shy, he'd get them on stage, or he'd talk about them on his radio show. Come on, you got to come out and see me on this night. I'm taping, and you got to be there. Things like that. So Wolfman was part of my life for those 10 years, and a welcome part. And in terms of ratings, although at that late time, it's a whole world unto itself, did it build? Did it fade? Over the 10 years, what were the ratings like? The ratings seemed to get better, and I think uh, what what, what we call sets in use. And I think that what happened is sets in use were growing. So I was part of that and part of the Tonight Show afterwards and for a while i was the only thing on the air after 1 p.m and 1 a.m i keep saying p.m 1 a.m that was it and then later all of a sudden you saw some people talking doing not podcasts but but video casts a little bit and you had a couple of alternatives but i was the only game in town 
And so if you like music and Wolfman Jack, all the acts we had, the music was being promoted by the record companies themselves. So it was, uh, it was I must say, a party. And, and I never missed a show. To what degree did Johnny going to an hour affect the show because you were on a half hour earlier? At that, after that, it did not affect it. And I was fortunate that that happened. But uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was concerned, talked to John about it. Uh, he was tired. He was just getting tired uh, of doing it constantly, constantly. Didn't know where he'd find the next act, the next person. So as you probably know, we had a lot of regulars who were wonderful there. Uh, Don Rickles was a regular. And some of these people were just wonderful regulars because he was tired. So I was fortunate that he did talk about the show even after when it was not my lead-in. John talked about it. And of course, he beat me at tennis all the time then. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to what degree were in concert in Don Kirshner's rock concert competition? They were not. Uh, Donnie Kirshner was a very good friend of mine. I adored him. Uh, we talked about the acts, and I would always say, look, if you go back to the East Coast near New York, go do rock concert. It'll be great for you. He did the same thing for acts coming out the West Coast. And uh, I don't. I never looked at them as, as competition. I just didn't. Uh, some of those shows, like in concert, had to lip sync. They couldn't get quite the audio that I did. And one of the reasons was because I had the sound men. So many of the records were coming out of Hollywood, out of the recording studios in Hollywood, a few of them in the Valley. And um, there, there was a guy named Bill Cole who everybody said, can you get Bill Cole? And I kept saying, no, I, I, I've asked Bill. He just doesn't seem to want to. And in the pilot, um, the pilot was done by a fellow named Bill Levitsky, who was very well known. He did it, but he couldn't do it anymore. He was too busy doing records. And then fortunately, starting uh, at show two, I had Bill Cole. So the acts were as happy as can be. And they loved the fact that the sound was sensational. Okay, this is a business that's reactive. So at first, you get a certain number of acts. And as you say, then the records start to move on Saturday and Sunday. Did then the relationships change such that acts were hounding you to be on? That really happened. Of course, if you, if you looked at the top six or seven acts in the world, they, all, they came and they did it, but they didn't hound me. But other than that, it wasn't a matter of hounding. Uh, an example, somebody said to me, one of the, I think it was Susan Richards said, you got to book Christopher Cross. Well, who's Christopher Cross? Well, this record company is saying that he is going to be the next big thing. We've heard of his record coming out, I believe it was called Sailing. And um, uh, listen to this and listening to it, it was absolutely terrific. Well, what does he look like? Uh, here, let me get a picture from the record company. Took a look at, at Christopher Cross, and he can sing. Let's book him. So I would put him on at 215. He wasn't well known, but he, he just knocked it out. I mean, I could see the audience sitting on the ground there on the floor and Richard Pryor there, etc. And a, a comic or two that we had, a Steve Martin, uh, would say, wow, this kid is fabulous. And that's what, what would happen on new acts. I did put them on often for the record companies because they wanted to break them because they believed in them. 
and they were usually right. Okay, so you said you were there at every show. Uh, a lot of people don't know how these shows are ultimately created. What were you doing at every show? Well, the, the director, who was a Stan Harris or a Dick Ebersol or Kenny Ehrlich or Rocco Urbisi, whatever, they would be upstairs directing. I would basically be on the floor, but moving from around the dressing rooms, talking to the acts, making sure they were comfortable. Did they have anything they wanted? If they drank something, whether it was a Mountain Dew or whatever it might have been, uh, did we have enough for them? Could we do anything for the people who brought them over? Just make everybody comfortable. I, I guess you'd call me the executive producer. And uh, I would walk around, and if I saw something that I didn't like, if it might be a drug or something, I made sure that I put a stop to that immediately and uh, would not allow that. That didn't happen often. Uh, NBC could not believe it, but it didn't happen often. And I was a, a floor manager then. What I was doing was making sure everybody was ready to come out on one of those three stages next when we went live. You talk about drugs. What about alcohol? Yes. Same thing. Same thing. And, you know, you can't really control it. You can't tell somebody who's uh, 25 years old what to do or how to do it. But they wanted it. They wanted to look good. And especially they wanted to sound good. And then a lot of them brought their own sound people. And they went and talked to Bill Cole about what they wanted, a little more trouble here and this part of it, and cut it down to base over here, and here's what I want you to do here. And, and Cole was a pro at it. And so when an act like that, who's a hit on records, is happy with their sound, the evening goes well. Okay. How did you end up getting comedians in, on the show? That stemmed from Johnny. Johnny said, you know, I, I break it up often with a comic, you know, it might be a Rickles, it might be this one or that one. So I decided I'd do the same darn thing. And the comic might be a little different for me. It might be a George Carlin. Uh, Steve Martin was, was young and new then. Uh, Bill Cosby was on. Andy Kaufman was on. And I just had fun with them. It was just like a little bit of a break. For some people, it might have been a bathroom break. Other people, it might have been a music break. But I at home, and I just thought, that's terrific. They're, they're fun. Everybody loosens up a little bit. The music can stop for 20, 30 minutes, and everybody will relax a moment. And it worked out well in the studio as well. Now, this is 50 years ago, and the younger generation may not be able to comprehend. It aired once, and then you couldn't see it again, right? It aired once. I did repeat some shows because I did, as I said, about 48 a year. And and that was it. That was it. And I put them away, locked them up. And for whatever got me really seriously, uh, late after about six or seven years, I decided that uh, I was afraid of the tape. Johnny had told me that some of the tape of his early shows which he didn't really own because NBC paid for his show, um, the tape went bad. And they'd look, try and look at an old show or an hour act to bring back, and the tape went bad. So I looked for the latest, which I did then. I have done since then, put it on what they call hard drive, and um, now it's all protected. Every bit of it's protected. And uh, every time we had a signed contract, they went in these boxes and 
took care of those things and and stored them in in storages that I paid for. And you were that much of a music fan. At that time, you were just shy of 40, which sounds young when you're on the other side of it. But that was an era where it was, you say, was driven by 25-year-olds. Well, I I think I started around 32 or 33 uh, is where I started. And then, of course, obviously, uh, age went. But the music stuck with me. And I was a, a major, major country fan as well. Uh, I respected the country acts when they came in and talked. And I remember sitting down with Loretta Lynn and knowing that she wrote most of her songs. How in the world do you do this? She said, well, you know, he'd come home drunk at night and I'd just sit there all night. And he'd give me a little whack in the side of the head and I'd write a song. (laughs) And if you listen to those songs, that's what happened. It's exactly what happened. She said it was it was life. Um, and then when one or two people got killed in these plane crashes, and I would write very much about them, how I loved them and what happened and how I lost them. And uh, it, it was wonderful listening to that. And then somebody like Chris Christopherson, who's still around, uh, I don't think he's ever really been appreciated for the songs he wrote. Some of the songs that Johnny Cash covered in George Jones and whoever it might have been, uh, Chris just had a way with lyrics. And, you know, I put on my dirt, my cleanest dirty shirt. Remember some of that stuff? That was all out of Christofferson. So sitting with these people, I really, really enjoyed. I think I learned a lot from them about their life and how they banged around and how Chris said he worked in a hotel uh, in Nashville when he went there and just these stories about these people where they came from how they were brought up I, I was just knocked out by it and it made me just be so sympathetic to where they came from and they remain good good people okay to the degree you can slice and dice tell us about a couple of peak experiences on the show uh, I had never gone on camera and never wanted to. I felt that I was always behind the camera, not in front of the camera. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm sitting out there with the audience, and I'm uh, watching it, watching an act. And um, he was getting a, a record. He was getting a gold record on stage. And he said, where's Bert? I don't want this record company to, to hand it to me. I want... I want Bert Sugarman to give it to me. I said, no, no, no. I don't really, I, I don't go on camera. Uh, I just, I just don't, but let's, we'll tape it with a record company and I'll make sure we shoot it beautifully. And Jim Croce said to me, well, then I'm leaving. What? If you can't hand it to me and you're the, the boss of the show and I'm your star here, I'm out of here. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to my next gig. Are you serious? I'm very serious. I got up out of the audience. I took the record from the record person and I handed it to him, made a little speech for him. And that's in the show. And I gave Jim Croce his gold record. And he said to me, I love it. I love you coming up and doing this. And you don't know how much I appreciate it, Bert. And I want to come back and host again. I said, you got it. No question, you will come back and host. Give me some dates, you're free, and we'll do it. And 
unfortunately, he was then killed in a plane crash. Uh, and so we, he could never do that again. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. So it started out as the Midnight Special, but ultimately was billed as Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special. How did that happen? I didn't realize that was ultimately. I thought that was from the beginning. You know something that I don't know about it, Bob. Well, you know, as I say, my memory only works so well, but when you go on YouTube, it does say Burt Sugarman's, and on some of the early videos, I think it doesn't. But let's leave that alone for a second. So where are you from? Where, where were you born, and where did you grow up? Born in, in Beverly Hills. Uh, my father was a pharmacist, and I lived in a one-bedroom, a two-bedroom apartment a tiny little apartment right off Sunset Boulevard. Um, and my dad would go to Sunset and Vine, where he worked in a drugstore. And 
my wife and I recently, just recently, were looking through old pictures of her family and my family. And I've got some pictures of my dad with Tyrone Power, who wrote a note on this picture saying, Al, you give me my prescriptions when I really want them. And my dad would tell me that Sinatra was in there all the time. Tyrone Power, all these major actors I'd always heard about. And they had their own drugs. And he said, yes, we'd give them a drug here and a something there and this (laughs) and that. And they came and hang around and they were absolutely wonderful coming in the drugstore that I worked in. So I was um, a local then. I didn't go to Beverly High. I thought it was a little snooty and the kids had money and we didn't have too much money of any kind. And so I went to school not far on Fairfax and Melrose called Fairfax High School. And uh, that's where I went to school and grew up there and then went to USC and didn't go to the film school. (laughs) And uh, that's my, that's growing up. Okay. So were you an only child? I was an only child. Yes. Okay, and you've had a lot of success. Were you always the straw that stirred the drink that made things happen? What was your personality in these experiences growing up? I I think I could say nicely aggressive. Uh, I was a self-starter, extremely curious uh, about whatever I was going to do. I was very, very curious, and that led me to go into things like hamburgers later, paper companies, cement companies, all just different kinds of things. Something about these different businesses appealed to me later. When I was young, uh, it, was, it was pretty much the same thing. I had, I had friends who were in the entertainment business. Glenn Campbell was a friend of mine from the time I was very, very young. And uh, uh, Glenn and I would travel and goof around, and he was not known then because he was a guitar player for some of the major acts. He was known as the real guitar player in a studio. So he wasn't known as Glenn Campbell. He didn't have his TV show then, etc. Uh, I do remember Glenn's TV show went on the air and uh, he came uh, to meet me in Aspen, Colorado so we could ski for a three-day weekend. And John Denver, this is later, John Denver was having a party. We ran into him and asked, but he said, look, here's where I live, et cetera, et cetera. Come on out to my party. Uh, it'll be tonight. Well, it started snowing in the afternoon, a massive snowstorm. So Glenn and I, I'm driving and Glenn's looking and we're having trouble seeing the front of our car. And he said, look, there's a light there. Let's pull into that light. And we'll find something. This looks like a little ranch house. I said, Glenn, up here, you get shot. <laughs> it's now eight thirty nine at night. You just don't walk into something. He said, come on, come on. You're a city slicker. Pull in. So I made a right turn. I stopped about 20 feet away. He opens the car door and I open my door and I'm just standing in the door of my car. He knocks on the door and a little lady, probably 75 years old, opens the door, looks at him. She said, hi, Glenn, come on in. <laughs> Well, you could have knocked me down. (laughs) I started realizing the power of television there. It was amazing to me. Uh, So we went in, sat with her. Uh, She had no idea where John Denver lived. We spent an hour with her and went back home. (laughs) Never went to that party. Okay. So you go to USC. Before you graduate from USC, are you already an entrepreneur or did that not start until after you graduated from college? That started off after 
um, I, I joined a ZB, a, a ZB, I joined a fraternity and uh, I was there a year and I didn't like it. Everybody was drunk. I was stunned at that at USC. They were drinking every night and it was, it was a mess. They didn't study very much. And I was not a real good student. I was what you would call a C student. Sometimes when it was something math, trigonometry, math, I was good. Other than that, history, English, those wonderful things, I barely got a C. Uh, So I had to study. And I didn't didn't want to stay. So I dropped out of the fraternity. I I wanted to graduate, which I did uh, with that kind of a weak scholastic record. And then I just started looking around TV, trying to come up with something I could. I saw game shows I thought were cute. How could I come up with one and do one? I started doing that stuff. So what was your first break? What was your first show? Um, first show. I can't answer that, Bob. I can't remember the exact first show right now. I had one called Celebrity Sweepstakes that was one of the early ones. Not okay, sure but if you, it was you're exact. an outsider. How you go from outsider, he grew up in Beverly Hills, to having a show on network television? Well, I had a lot of friends in the business. Ronnie Burns, who was George Burns' and Gracie Allen's son. Ronnie was my buddy. Glenn I was with all the time. And I ran into a lot of these young people that were in the business at the time and would spend some time with them, learn a little bit go on a movie set, go on a TV set. And I realized that I like TV much, much more than I like films because you could be working on a film and it was, as you know, a year before it came out. By the time the editors finished six months later and this and that, I didn't like that. You could do a game show, a quiz show, and if you did it on Monday and you taped a few of them, they aired starting the Monday after. Many of them aired the same week. I love that. I love that instantaneous thing happening. And so I I just gravitated towards TV. Um, A a fellow named Chuck Barris was a friend of mine. And Chuck started uh, the newlywed game, the dating game, etc. And I bought those shows from Chuck. He had been doing them a few years, got tired of it. And uh, I bought those shows and I produced them and I started working on those shows and I owned them then. And uh, then I created some of my own. I did a special called Miss Black America. There was Miss America and I did Miss Black America out of the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. I enjoyed the Philharmonic. And when Zubin Mehta was our conductor years and years ago, I uh, produced Zubin Maiden, the L.A. Philharmonic. I had Jack Benny as a guest and uh, got some Emmys on that show and did that. Um, they, they just came out of relationships and this and that. Henry Mancini, how's that? Hank was a good friend of mine. And he always said, you do all these shows. What should I do? I said, do you. Be yourself. Come on. He had a wonderful personality, just so likable. He was just a a terrific guy. And uh, so I produced one year of shows with Hank, which I have protected and still have them, of course. And uh, I enjoyed every single thing I did with him. So what you told me earlier really tickles my heart because he was a knockout man. He was terrific. 
and things like that. And I did things that have not come out. Did a show called City Versus Country. I did a bunch of those. And I would take country people from the South against city people from more in the North. And I would have them do athletics together and see who won. Just a silly show. But it went on the network and did well. I remember in 71 and 72, I used to produce the Grammy Awards. And uh, I remember how I got the show. Uh, I knew a man named Bob Wood. Bob Wood at the time was president of CBS. And I would see him socially because of friends and liked him and he liked me. And another man well-known in the business named George Slaughter. George produced the Grammy Awards, but he didn't air them till a week later. They were just shot on, on tape. I want to do them live. So I went to George. I said, what do you want? I want to buy this. He said, well, give me X and you own it. It's a pain to do it anyway. <laughs> I gave him X. I own the show. I immediately went over to Bob Wood, talked to him a little bit and said, I want to put this live on your network. He said, let me look at one of them on tape. Showed it to him. He said, I like it. I'll bet you'll do a great job. I saw you do X and X. And that's how I got 71 and 72. I did the Grammys live. Uh, on CBS, and they stayed live after that. Uh, just unusual, unusual things would happen. Uh, and I would, I don't want to say I fell into it, but I was friendly and aggressive. And if I saw something I thought might work, I would jump at it, just jump at it. So you were involved with Richard Pryor from an early day before most people knew who he was. How did that come together? Uh, I met Richard when he was doing something at the comedy show on Sunset Boulevard. And I went late at night a couple of nights and met him, and, and I thought he was the best talent, comedic talent I had ever seen. Uh, I went backstage, talked to him, introduced myself, talked to him I've done some TV shows and this and that. And from that, uh, we met the next day and the next day and the next day, and we just became pals, just became buddies. I know Richard did drugs, and um, I never, ever in all the years with Richard ever saw him take a drug. He did not allow me to see him take a drug. He res respected me for that, and I respected him for that. Um, we did shows together. Um, boy, one day he called, called me up, and he said, can you come on over? And he had MS at the time. This is later. And he said, I've got a friend that'll answer the door that you've known for years and years and haven't seen him in a long time, but come on over the house. And I said, uh, I want to bring my wife. He said, okay. And my wife is a lady named Mary Hart, who was on entertainment tonight for 29 years. So Mary and I go over to Richard's house, knock on the door, and Mary didn't want to go. She said, Richard, of all the people in 29 years, Richard was the worst interview I ever had. Just horrible. I don't want to go. Don't want to go. And I said, you got to come. Come on. You'll see a different Richard. He's my pal. I want you to see Richard with me. Please, Mary. So Mary came along, not happy about it. And uh, I knock on the door and who opens the door but Muhammad Ali. And I knew Muhammad, had met him early. And uh, he also was not real well at the time. So we had Richard Muhammad there. And Muhammad was great. And Richard was my buddy still, and he was a little bit weakly talking. And he said, come on, Mary. Come on, Mary. I know I was with you one time. 
And Mary looks at me and she goes over and sits next to him. And I go off with Muhammad. And Muhammad and I are talking for about 30 minutes in another room. And I come back and see Richard and Mary. And I swear to you, they both had tears in their eyes. I said, what in the world happened? Look at the two of you. And Mary said, Richard asked me, who was the worst interview I ever had? And I told him him. And I told him why and what had happened. And I was in Oklahoma then on a talk show working. And Richard came through early in the morning and he hadn't gone to bed. And this is not where he wanted to be. And we discussed it. And he put his arms around me and started crying and said, I oftentimes hurt the people I love. And I just started to cry. And here we are. And, and after that, when Mary would interview Richard for Entertainment Tonight, which she did, he'd always get a couple of hundred letters and she would go over to the house, oftentimes without me, and read the letters to Richard that were sent uh, about him to the studio. And they became best, best friends. Um, at his funeral, uh, he left directions that he wanted Mary to be the speaker and the host at his funeral, which she did. And um, I, I loved him. I just loved him, and so did Mary. And he was a dear, dear friend till the end. I once gave him as a gift. I gave him a miniature horse. I had a ranch out in Hidden Valley and had a couple of miniature horses, and he admired him when he came out, so I gave him one, and his great Dane ate it. Uh, <laughs> and killed the little miniature horse. You can't top that story, and you can't make it up. <laughs> I can hear him telling that story. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, Bob. Wow, there's some things that happen that are just mind-boggling. Now, you have a long history of being involved and married to very famous, desirable women. You talk about Mary Hart. You were uh, married to Mary. Carol. Mary is 34 years married, Bob. Okay, but there were people before, supposedly you were engaged to Anne Margaret, married to Carol Wayne. What's your magic for the guys out there? Well, tell us a trick. Oh, wow. Bob Lefsetz asked me that question. I, I, I don't think there's any magic except maybe me being me. Uh, Anne Margaret was on stage with George Burns in Las Vegas. Uh, Ronnie Burns told me about her, said, come on, let's go see the show. My dad says she's a wonderful, wonderful talent. I went up there backstage afterwards, George and Margaret, Ronnie and I, and then she and I went out a few times. Um, you know, when you're around town like that and you're in different nooks, different corners, different shows here and there, you meet a lot of people and you have a few dates. Well, you had more than a few dates, as you say, you're Mary. How'd you meet Mary? I had produced a movie called Children of a Lesser God uh, for Paramount. And Paramount wanted the producers of three or four of the films coming out that next year to go to Las Vegas to meet the theater owners. They had a couple of thousand of them come to Las Vegas every year. And the producers would talk about their films. Well, I get on a Paramount plane and I look across the aisle and there's Mary Hart, who I watch on TV every night. 
and always thought, gosh, I'd sure like to go out with Mary Hart. And she's sitting alone with papers on her lap. I go over, I sit down in the chair next to her, and I said, and there's only a few of us producers, and then Mary. And I said, hi, I'm Bert Sugarman. Mary, it's nice to meet you. She said, hi. I said, can we talk a few minutes? She said, no, we can't. I'm going through all of these papers about your movies, of you producers, who you are, what the names are, so I can't right now. Maybe another time. Thank you. Well, that was a, a great one. I went back to my seat and sat there. Uh, and then on stage, I couldn't talk to her, just couldn't. And uh, she was working, and I was getting ready for my speech to all these theater owners. And that was the end of it. And uh, going home, I went home a different... I didn't go home. I went to New York, and I guess she went back to Hollywood. So I didn't see her for quite a while. And then? What was next? Right. Next was, I'm in New York, laying on the beach, and... My host at their house says, you got a phone call. Bert, come on, get up here. You got a phone call. I go up and it's a friend of mine at Beverly Hills. Do you know what the share party is, Bob? Yes, I do. Okay. Tell my audience. Okay. The share party is where it's a charity and everything goes to mental health. And it's tied to Cedars-Sinai Mental Hospital and the wives of many male executives and a few of the husbands of female executives run this group called Share. And they give a party where you wear country western clothes, boots, uh, guns and, and uh, all kind of Levi's, fun party to go to every year in Los Angeles or Beverly Hills, usually at the Hilton. And this friend of mine says, listen, I'm going to the share party, and this is on a Wednesday. And he said, you know, it's Saturday night. And he said, I'm taking Mary Hart and Jackie Smith. I'm really mad about Jackie Smith. I'm just, I'm in love with her. And Mary's going to come along. Would you like to join us? (laughs) I said, absolutely, positively. Okay. He said, I'll come by. He doesn't even know where I am. He said, I'll come by and pick you up about 6.30 or 6 o'clock, and we'll go get Mary first and then Jackie. I said, great. Wonderful. Well, I'm thrilled. I fly right back to L.A., and uh, we go by and pick up Mary. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Bert. You never called me. Oh, my gosh. What a start. Mary, I feel terrible. I never called you. Thank you for saying that. Okay. We go out that night. He goes over with Jackie. Uh, leaves the table. So I'm sitting with Mary and we talk all night long, had a great time, go home, drop Jackie off, drop her off. Next morning, about 10 o'clock, my phone rings and it's Mary. Hi, Bert. Hi, Mary. Weren't you going to call me? We had a great time last night. Of course I was going to call you. Uh, How about dinner Tuesday? And Mary Hart says, how about dinner tonight? I said, wow, you have got it. I'll pick you up tonight. We're going to dinner. We literally have never been apart since that dinner. Wow, How's that's that? an incredible love story. And it's true. It's 100% true. 34 years, Bob, 34 years. That's a long record in anybody's <laughs> book, never mind Hollywood. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents 
a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. So you talk about producing children of the lesser God. How'd you get into movies? Uh, by reading a couple of scripts that I like. Um, I read the script. I didn't read the script. Um, that's a real interesting question because I heard about the play and I was in New York and I heard about the play and I wanted to see the play. So I went to see the play and I'm sitting there and I see Norman Lear sitting in front of me, Ray Stark sitting across the aisle. And I'm thinking, wow, these are two of the biggest producers in the business. I knew them both, Ray extremely well, Norman a little, and I watched the first half and, and it broke for 15, 20 minutes. I went downstairs. I called the playwright's agent, Stan Kamen, at William Morris in Beverly Hills from the phone downstairs, and I said, I love this. I want to buy the movie rights. He said, well, Bird, you may not know, but, but Ray Stark is there and Lear is there, and he named another producer I never heard of, and he said, they're all there. And I'm probably going to hear from him. And I said, I want to buy it. And I want to buy it now. Right now on the telephone, what does he want for the rights, the film rights? And he said, I don't know. Hold on. I said, not too long. I got to go back. He obviously called the playwright and he called me back and he said, look, I think from one of those guys, he'd take three, four hundred thousand. But you, you've not, you're not known for producing a film. He wants a million dollars. 
I said, you got it. A million bucks, he's got it. I want the, the film rights. He said, but he's got to meet you. I said, where is he? He said, New Mexico. I said, okay, I'll meet him for breakfast. Where? Las Cruces, New Mexico. I said, let me know. Call me later and tell me where to meet him. I'll be flying in private. I'll go there. Okay. I saw the place, said hello to, to Norman, said hello to Ray. How are you? What's doing? Went back to the hotel, checked out, flew to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I had an airplane then. Flew there. I met the playwright, sat with him for an hour. He said, we're going to get along, but will you let me write the first draft to the screenplay? I said, 100% yes, of course. I own the rights, and that's how I got involved. How long from that date till the movie is made? Well, it was uh, probably a year till the film was made. But um, a couple of things. The next day, I got a phone call in L.A. from my friend Ray Stark. He said, I'm going to do you a big favor. He said, I'm going to give you the million dollars back. You'll have nothing invested and we'll co-produce it together. I said, I can't do that, Ray. You're terrific. Well, why not? You won't have anything invested. I said, I know, but you're one of the biggest producers. You produce Streisand's films. Everybody knows it. They'll never know me. I'll never get a reputation of any kind. This is a quality film that I want to make, and I appreciate it very much, but I'm not going to do that because I want my name out there so I get some reputation to make more films. He said, I get it. I get it. I then uh, went back to New York, and I wanted Robert Redford to play to play the star in, the, in it. And, and Bob Redford and I were together for about two weeks in a row, day in and day out, going over what the play would be like and what would happen in each scene. And he was fabulous to work with. I mean, he was such a, a gentleman. And one day sitting there after about two weeks, he said, Bert, I can't do it. You know where the, the lead climbs up this tree and looks at her and tries to make noise and get her attention uh, on the second floor? I said, yes. He said, Bob Redford wouldn't do that. And I said, I know, but you're the character. You're not Bob Redford there. He said, no, but I've got to live with being Bob Redford. And he just wouldn't do that. He, he'd shoot somebody. He'd do this with Paul Newman, but he wouldn't do that. I can't do it. I thanked him. We hugged. And I thanked him so much for spending all that time with me. And um, that was it. So we cast it. Marley Matlin um yeah, hi, this is Marley Matlin's big breakthrough. How'd you end up yeah, using Marley? Because she came through with other non-speaking and not hearing actresses, and there was a light about her. There was something about Marley that was absolutely amazing. Now, you know that that was 38 years ago, 39 years ago, and she was wonderful. Um, and I will also tell you that last October... Uh, Mary and I took Mary and her husband to a Dodger baseball game. We are still friends with Marley. She's as wonderful now as she ever was. But we met her. She went to uh, uh, Godette College, I believe, part of Juilliard. And uh, she just, she was alive. And then, of course, she gets nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. I go to the Academy Awards and Marley wins Best Actress of the Year, non-speaking and non-hearing lady. 
Nothing like that had ever happened. And I was so proud of her. She was wonderful. And if you've seen Coda, then you know Marley was in Coda. Just terrific, as wonderful as ever. Okay. A, the playwright, he wrote the original script. How close was that to the shooting script? Not that close. It was it was interesting. It was good, but it didn't quite hit me. And when we went over talking about it, he understood it. And he was terrific about it. He just, I didn't know how he'd act. And I felt I did know because he was such a gentleman. But it just didn't get there. And then after a couple of drafts and this and that, I felt we had it. Okay, you went on earlier that you were a TV guy. It was very immediate. Now you're working in the movies. Are you still ultimately disillusioned? Because my understanding is you don't go on to make a whole bunch of movies. That That's true. I made about five movies, and I, I really like TV better. It was It suited my personality better, which was immediate and go for it and do it and aggressive. And so TV uh, fitted better. Uh but I, ha- I had to deal with that, and I had then I saw a, a, a script, and I went to see a play called Extremities. And Extremities um, was absolutely wonderful. It was a story about a woman that was watched by a man who wanted to get her and beat her and rape her, and he watched her leave her house, go to work, come back from work. And so he goes and captures her, gets her in, his, in the apartment, and lo and behold, this woman turns the tables on him and somehow you got to see the film what she does is take him prisoner and it was farrah fawcett in the film and she did a fabulous job just fabulous job i did another film called crimes of the heart with jessica lang sissy spacek and just some fun things that i did because i liked the scripts and uh then i after that i i started getting out of that business and, and kind of leaving the entertainment business and going in some businesses, like I say, I went in the hamburger business. How do you do that? Well, I did it. Went in the hamburger business. I wait, went wait, in the wait, cement- wait, a little yeah. slower. What was the name of your hamburger chain? What were you doing in the hamburger business? Uh, I went, I was in New Orleans. And I had a meeting in the afternoon. I was in Nolens, and uh I wanted to get a quick burger and go buy a McDonald's. And I was driving by this McDonald's and I see in their line, there was like 25 cars and I didn't have that much time. And across the street was a little place that had a line on each side of the building. Double drive through. This is like 1986, 87, 88. And uh, I had never seen that. And the line were only four or five cars. I went there. I got a burger. I got fries, milkshake. I loved it. I ordered some more fries. Loved it. You couldn't sit down inside. Had two or three tables outside. There was no inside. Small little building called Rallies. Oh. Well, Rallies. So I went back that night after my afternoon meeting with a man named Al Copeland, who owned some restaurants in New Orleans, uh, dinner restaurants, and was very well known. And I went back and I said to the guy, who's the manager? He said, I am. And I own it. Talked to him for a while. And I bought that store. You bought it? Yes, I bought it. And from there, I started a chain called Rallies. And after I had about 40 of them, there was a chain that was similar, double drive-through, called Checkers. And that started in Alabama. 
I bought that and I merged it with Rally's, kept both of their names. I went from that one store to about 920 stores and sold the, the two chains. How do you decide when to sell? Gut. That's it. Gut. Did I want to continue to uh, build, build them? Uh, Mary and I, and as I said, I had an airplane, used to fly to two and three cities a day because before I built a store, which was a rallies or a checkers, I wanted to see the location and I wanted it to be on the proper corner and I wanted to know what traffic was under 38 miles an hour going by there. And I wanted to be near a McDonald's, right? If there was a McDonald's close by with one drive through they'd always have a line and I'd get some of their business. And so I, I was really working at it. And I thought, that's enough. That's okay. Maybe now. And gut told me to leave it and do something else. So it was obviously very successful. What was the thrill relative to entertainment personally? Major. Major, because I enjoyed what I was doing. I thought the product was terrific. I had battered fries, and I thought they were absolutely wonderful. And I told my staff uh, in there, and they they didn't all know me uh, because I had so many, so I could go buy them and uh, mystery shop. I could walk in, make sure the Johns were clean and the place was okay. They didn't know who I was. And uh, I found out a few things. I found out that my managers were better as female than male. Uh, there was less thievery, almost none with females. Males, they would be given a 20 burgers out to their buddies or this or that. And you had to watch that kind of stuff. And uh, so I love to have female managers at the stores. And um, I just enjoyed the fries. I thought they were really good, better than McDonald's. And the burgers, we were careful to make sure we had the right amount of meat. It had the proper heat and how we put burgers with automatic heaters on top of them so nobody would ever get E. coli or whatever. I enjoyed the whole process. I just really loved it. How are your arteries? Well, I'm still around today, <laughs> right? With, with you, Bob. And then mine are not that great. So uh, you said you got in the cement business? Another another podcast, Bob. Okay. Just do. I love talking to you too because you ask me wonderful questions that really make me think back. And I really appreciate that. I do. But we've got another part of my life maybe again. Okay. But before we wrap up, a couple of things. With so much experience in hindsight, what do you think about today's television business? What do we know? Television drives the culture in a way that no other art form does, movies or music. It's moved to streaming. Uh, there's a plethora of product. What do you think about today's landscape? I think streaming. I just think streaming is absolutely the way to go. Uh, there used to be a show that you could look at at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night, and it was wonderful, but the next Tuesday night, you couldn't. You weren't in town. You were working. You had a meeting. You had a, a birthday party, something, and so you'd miss the week's later show. Streaming, you see them when you want to see them. Um, I think that so many of them do it well. Netflix has done it well. And the management of Netflix, look back where they started from. You know, Reed Hastings, Ted Sarandos, they started out with DVDs in the store. And they're still putting out music and product and great shows. But a lot of them do. You know, they're not just that. Paramount Plus, 
Uh, my friends all watch Yellowstone. Love it. Uh, who are these people? Who are some of them? Who are the writers of some of them? Uh, it, it's just streaming is the way to go. And if I was going to go back in that business now, which I never know what I'm going to do next, uh, streaming is what I love to do. Just love to do. Make a show that you can let 10 of them out on the same day. And people can watch all of them on a weekend if you love it or watch them when they can watch them. So, and there's so many great. Have you seen Yellowstone, Bob? To tell you the truth, that's one show I haven't seen. Yeah, it's worth looking at. It really is. Kevin Costner's terrific. Uh, the show is just great. And 1883 and where it goes from there, 1923, all spinoffs, all terrific. I think that's Paramount Plus. But yeah, I'm pretty familiar with it. You know, it's kind of like succession. You fall behind and then it's monolithic to start up. And, uh, you know, I have a list of all the stuff that I'm watching. There's so much good television from around the world, especially. You mentioned that uh, you don't know what you're doing next. Are you still actively involved in businesses? Absolutely. 100%. Morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. You can call me and tell me you got an idea and let's try and do it together. The other thing, especially in this era of financial unpredictability, you've made a lot of money. Where do you invest your money? I don't think I'll go there. I will tell you the philanthropy is very important to Mary and I right now. Mary sits on the board of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. That's important to us. And there's a group of charities uh, that are really, really important to us. We're always looking for others, and we focus a lot on that. And if there's something that we can do in the entertainment business to make some of these things better known, uh, while Vin Scully was alive, uh, Mary talked to Vinny, and he was uh, the voice of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And I have videotape of Vinny and Mary on the floor at Children's Hospital with Paul Viviano, the president, playing with some kids whose hair is shaved because of operations who are healing and this and that with these children. And that just gets my heart. Just so wonderful to see in Vin Scully's voice. And now a lot of the Los Angeles Dodgers come over. And it's interesting because the six years old, six years and seven and eight year olds, they don't know who the players are. The 14 year olds that are in the hospital, they do. So it's seeing, uh, some of them come over there and, and they're attracted to the little bit, the older ones. So we just enjoy that so much. Now, you mentioned your health is good. What's it like having so many of your contemporaries pass? It's, it's depressing. That's what it is. Uh, I see some of them do and I see some of them are alive. I talked to a fellow yesterday by the name of David Permut. David's been a producer around for years. He just called me and said, I saw... The Midnight Special TV show on YouTube. Bert, 50 years, congratulations. Why'd you wait so long? And we were on for 45 minutes last night, late last night, with him telling me about a show that he's going to stream now, which I can't tell you about. I wish I could, but it sounds fabulous. And the star that he's got going to be in that, it's wonderful. And again, I just really enjoy streaming. Whether it's looking, have you looked at, uh, by the way, Succession, they're in their last year, right? right? And of course, 
Mary and I watch Succession. Love it. Have you seen Poker Face? You'll get a kick out of that. You know, I know Poker Face, I've watched uh, about a few episodes. I must say, I'm very into this foreign television. The Israelis and the Danes, I find, make, you know, have the reputation of making the best international television. Like Fauda. Oh, Fauda, unbelievable. Unbelievable. One of the the best ever. Right. And then the show that uh, Homeland was based in, Israeli show, Shrugreem. We're watching on Amazon right now an Indian show, South Asian, shall we say, called Fakes, Farsi. It's really good. There's a new season of this English show. It's not in America yet that I always say is my number one recommendation called Happy Valley. Have you seen Happy Valley? It's a crime show. No, I don't even know the title. Uh, Thank you. This is the number one show in England. Mary's sitting next to me writing that down right now. Okay. How about Spiral? Have you seen Spiral? No. No. Spiral is a French show co-production with uh, the English. Basically the best cop show you'll ever see. On what streamer do you remember? I think, you know, these things move around. I think I know, you can watch it's true. one or two seasons for free on Amazon. I think the rest are on MHZ megahertz. Okay. S-P-I-R-A-L. Yeah, absolutely. Now, okay. let's be clear, since you're a pro, they don't make them every year, and they have now made the final episode. So when you watch the first season, the transfers won't be as possibly good, but they're great. I mean... I could go, the, the other classic show is called A French Village, which is uh, another French show about during the resistance. Have you we seen know that one? that one. Oh, yeah. We know French Village. Yes. That's great. And Tremendous. How about the original Border and the Killing from Denmark, they've been remade as American shows. Mary is shaking her head yes, and I can't remember it. How about Occupied? Have you watched Occupied? Occupied, yes. Occupied, we know. Exactly. I mean, these shows. But how about Fauda? How about this last season of Fauda? Wasn't that amazing? Okay. Explain that guy, Duran, has so much (laughs) charisma. He's like an anti hero because by American standards, they wouldn't even cast him. You're right. Good looking enough, whatever. You know that he used to be a bodyguard in America before he was the star of Fauda. I didn't know that. His name is Lior, and boy, is he something. Wow. He's a star. It's just, you know, usually (laughs) when these shows play multiple seasons, they get worse. But not this show. And it's so Put your head in here one second. Mary, come here. Mary, come on. Mary, come on. One second. Come on, hon. We're not using the video, so it doesn't make any difference. No, just no video. Just come up. Just come take a peek. Hi, there. Hi. Hi, Bob. Good to see you. We can talk streaming television forever. (laughs) You know, there's just so many good shows and you you sit there and I, you know, a lot of people depend on the algorithm. I study it. I say that it's such an investment to watch these shows that I want to, oh, the other show that is unbelievable. Did you watch this French show, The Bureau? No. No. No, we don't write it down on the bureau. Okay, the, no, the, the bureau is the French CIA. Okay, now let, I'm going to huh. warn you right up front. It starts off slow. It's an intense show, 
but it is just like a movie. It is unbelievable. The Bureau. Yes. Okay. While we're talking, did you watch Borgen? Yes. 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 Unbelievable. There's this Swedish show called Bonus Family. It's on Netflix about a blended family. Really good. I don't know that one. You've watched Narcos, obviously. Yes. Yes. Can I give you a book? I have a book for you to read. Okay, what book? And I know know you'll love it. It's called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. I read it. Of course I read it. Okay. All right. Peter, what's his name? Peter uh, begins with Yes, yes. Peter Biskind. Right, right. I've even seen him speak about that. Really phenomenal. Oh, this is a magical show. Ethos. Did you watch Ethos? No, we've seen it advertised, but have not seen it. Oh, it's really intense Turkish show. Listen, I'll uh, I'll leave you with that. But uh, you know, it, that's my highlight of the day: watching streaming television. No, and I love these suggestions. Honestly, I really do. But most of all, I like your questions because I've never been asked some of these before, and I really enjoy this this hour or whatever it is. I love it. Thank well, you. Well, you know, you've been there and done that. To me, that is fascinating. I mean, we didn't go really deeply into it, but I know how hard it is to be successful. And most people who are successful say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, believe me, it was. So I'm a student of the game. What is the personality? What the relationships? You know, I grew up on the East Coast. and the East Coast, it's all about where you went to college, who your parents are. Whereas in LA, the most important thing is what kind of car you drive, which is just phony enough for me. <laughs> but none of that matters. Everybody's a self-starter. And the people who have made it to the top, they're always very intelligent and they have an amazing story. I won't keep you any longer, Bert. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for taking the time to speak to my audience. Bob, a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you so much. And as we say, you know, I was watching last night that I, not that I haven't watched them. Some of these performances are just utterly riveting. I mean, there's stuff you see, you know, forget the big hits, you know, like uh, Linda Ronstadt doing long, long time, et cetera. (laughs) But Redbone, come and get your love. I mean, I know that's (laughs) hard to see them perform that live. And there were a couple of, oh. Gary Wright doing Love is Alive. That's my favorite song. And to watch him play, you know, the guitar, the keyboard, you know, it's very hard to turn off. And I'm not blowing smoke up your rear end. It's, you know, it's great that this stuff is available. Well, every week, every week on Monday mornings, I'm going to put up another 10 or 15 that are unique and you'll love. You won't love them all, but there'll be some that'll be favorites of yours. Okay. Just to be very clear. Because I was uh, in preparation, I was going on YouTube to watch your channel specifically. You have to search me on your channel. What's the name of your channel again? Midnight Special TV Show. So for those at home, go to Midnight Special TV Show for the authorized versions. Although Bert is very up to date, he doesn't want to kill the other people. He's realizing building the audience. He's in business with them. And Bert, I'll leave it at that. Thanks again. My pleasure. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. 
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.